This is On the Margins, a podcast about educational equity in North Carolina. We bring the often untold stories of education in the state from margin to center. back to On The Margins podcast. I am your host, James E. Ford, Executive Director of Creed of the Center for Racial Equity in Education. And I have the good fortune of being joined by my partner, by my friend, by the co-founder of Creed, none other than Janine Bryant herself. Janine, say hi to the people. Hi. It's nice to be with you all this time. That's sound a little more enthusiastic than that. Hi. No, it's it's nice good. to no. be with you all. <laughs> <laughs> so y'all gonna get a chance to um, talk with both of us today. That's a special treat, I think, anyhow, um, because today is a special occasion. Um, this is not only the last episode of a successful season two of On the Margins podcast. It's also our anniversary. Yay! And by anniversary, not just any anniversary, right? Our one-year anniversary. Our one-year anniversary in existence as an organization. And so we're pretty excited. And so we're going to be talking about uh, and looking at the year in review, um, not just that on the Marcus podcast, but create in general. And so, um, you know, it gives a chance to get to know us a little bit better and all these things hear more about the work. And then, of course, we're going to talk about season two and some of the highlights and whatnot. But, uh, you know, we're all about, you know, casting a vision. But before that, you got to go to the past. And so really want to take a moment just for the listeners out there uh, to give you all a shout out. Thank you so much for rocking with us and um, helping us to complete two successful seasons of the podcast. Absolutely. Uh, Is it okay to say, like, we're proud, you know what I mean, (laughs) of the shows we produce? Is that arrogant? Um, I think we we are delighted that we are joining the community with so many beautiful and bright people and happy to share their stories. I couldn't have said that better myself. Thank you for the, because I mean, it's really about the the special guests we've had, the mm-hmm. subjects we've talked about and, and you know, and the communities that, been, that have been represented. So that's why, you know, what makes it important. Um, so we're grateful to y'all. Um, tons of wonderful people, great perspectives that we uh, think have represented, you know, our, our, our struggle for equity and education. And, um, you know, that's what we're about. And for some of y'all, I realized that, you know, you don't really know what we're about because, you know, you might've tuned in later, whatever the case may be. And shoot, I didn't even host the last uh, episode. We had one of our uh, equity fellows hosted a uh, shout out to Rodney Pierce, who's a 2019 North Carolina equity fellow. Great job, Rodney. Fellow. Yeah. Good job, Rodney. Um, but listen, man, it, we we are we're an organization um you know we are actually doing work here in north carolina uh and you know creed the organization that produces the on the margins podcast is a creative acronym for the center for racial equity in education and you know just really briefly for those of y'all who don't know you know we we exist to close racialized opportunity gaps in education and in education, I mean like P20. So always as soon as pre-K, all the way to post-secondary uh, for students of color in North Carolina. We have very North Carolina centric work. And, uh, you know, we do that three ways and three primary spheres of work. We do that through um, research, which we'll talk a little bit about. We produce some documents this year we're pretty proud of. We do that through engagement. Uh, our engagement strategy is really broad, y'all. Like, you know, obviously the podcast, 
Um, we've got a racial equity newsletter. Our fellows are a part of that. And some coalition building is a part of that as well, as well as the Teaching of Color crew. Shout out to the Teaching of Color folks, uh, the PLN of Educators of Color in North Carolina and, and allies. Uh, and then lastly, you know, we do the work. You know, Janine and I be actually in the trenches doing implementation work yeah. uh, in schools, in districts, uh, helping to shift practices to lead that lead to better uh, or improved outcomes for students of color. So on the margins is a part of that. It, it fits in our larger community engagement strategy. Um, and, you know, there's a nice little story behind how all this got lifted out the ground and how we made it to one successful year. Um, and so we're going to let y'all know a little bit about that. But, uh, you know, in, in summary, I'll say this. Uh, long time ago, now it seems like a long time ago, 2014, 15, it's 2020 now, isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. um, I became North Carolina Teacher of the Year, really cool honor, and learned after serving for five years at Garinger High School in East Charlotte that all the stuff that I saw, my beautiful black and brown kids um, who had been written off and victimized by bogus stereotypes. Uh, after traveling the state of North Carolina and not being a native of the state, I learned that, man, you know, these things are pretty pervasive. Like, actually, they're systemic. <laughs> you know, <laughs> whether you go to, you know, urban, rural, or suburban, you see kind of the same complexion of kids dealing with the same issues and just the same stuff all around. So, you know, I, I, I ended up leaving the classroom after that year um, and spending more time, worked for a policy organization, a uh, public school forum, and, you know, began to talk more in my personal writing and in the work with, you know, work I was doing about racial equity. And at the time, it was super unpopular in North Carolina. I don't know about other places, but <laughs> in North Carolina, I didn't really want to talk about that. Just so, statement. <laughs> <laughs> try to be nice, Janine. Like, okay. <laughs> it was not a, a welcome conversation, shall we say? But, uh, you know, um, the folks who do this work now, I can guarantee we've been doing this work for a while, like even when it wasn't populist, like just be clear. Uh, but no organization existed that called out the intersections of race and education. It might be a part or a piece of like some organization's agenda and there were some that were brave enough to talk about racial equity, but I just didn't see when I looked around, like is anybody talking about the ways that race shows up in our space? And so I just, I said, man, if it doesn't exist, then we got to create it. And you know, after realizing really quickly, like, okay, this is not something that can be done like solo. I prayed. This is an honest God story. I don't know how which our religious traditions are. But I said, God, I need to team up with somebody who, you know, is competent, gifted, all the things I'm not, <laughs> organized, diligent. And then I was like, oh, my, my friend, she's like that. And that's Janine. So, Janine, you can tell that we we've been knowing each other. This ain't we ain't not new to this. Like we've oh, been yeah. together for a minute. Yeah, because the first time that we actually connected, I was listening to you speak really clearly. I, I think you had just been named as Charlatine of the Year, uh, or it may have been even a little bit before that. It might have been at Levine. Um, and I'm sitting in the audience listening to you, and I I literally looked around and thought to myself, "Can they hear what he's saying? Like <laughs> he's." He's like blatantly called out white supremacy and he is people are clapping. I was like, do they hear him? Um, because I, in North Carolina, like you were you were saying on stage um, a lot of the words that people were whispering. And um, I would go on to run for office in 2015. Is that right? Wow. 
uh, and uh, I think then you got to hear a little bit more. I think we were we were kind of trading off That's tag right. teaming in the in the racial equity space. Will be just the, literally the willingness to even say the words. That's right. Um, yep. Yeah. That was that was scary. Racial equity. What is it? I mean, I'm all for equity, but racial equity. That's mm-hmm. mm, that's frightening. Yeah. So I mean, like I literally, I think in my Twitter account ran across an old DM. We were like, "Hey, James, I met you at this event. We should get together and like <laughs> let's talk." And it's like from 2014, 15. Yeah. And it's from that point we just you know we would always connect, right? And I was like, "Oh, so what are you working on, right?" And you got to, mm-hmm. I mean folks who don't know like you you're an educator as well and yeah. you know and you know obviously a black woman educator organizer you know so many things but it, it just made sense right at some point it's like you know what are you working on <laughs> mm-hmm. here's what i'm working on why don't we why do we well, do this we together good job we get a good job of kind of staying connected and you know we would do like um we would do these these check-ins with each other just like at Amelie's and then we moved to the the black owned coffee shop um but just checking in with each other just to say what we were working on and what had gotten us fired up or ignited out in the field um and as an educator I, I taught for three years in the classroom and then went on to work uh at Levine Museum of the New South as their youth and programs manager and then on as their vice president of education, I was seeing things um, at a national level. I was seeing a lot of what we saw reflected here in North Carolina and the battles we were fighting, um, as particularly when I transitioned and was working for an organization that was organizing across the Southeast. I was talking to teachers and parents and students and hearing these stories were heartbreaking to me because I, I knew these stories and I kept thinking to myself, why, who, who's fighting? Mm-hmm. for us who's mm-hmm. fighting for the children that are most marginalized who gets to stand up and say really really clearly and explicitly like our systems are not serving our children and i was seeing it um in tennessee uh where there were a number of um charter schools that were getting some backlash because some of the community members were starting to notice um, that the schools weren't necessarily serving in the ways that they had promised. I was seeing these things in Texas and there were um, educators who were fighting for basic, basic privileges mm-hmm. for their bilingual students and just to make sure their parents even understood what was going home. I saw this in Mississippi where I heard a student get spanked. Uh, he was corporately oh, punished. A, a, a young man and a young woman around the corner, they were punished um, with a paddle in 2015. And I, um, when I asked the principal, what was that? He said, you know, sometimes you have to, you have to treat people, you have to treat people and meet them where they are. Um, and that's all they know. That's all they respond to. Man, that's punitive as heck. Right? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you got to meet people where they are. Okay. Uh, are they not human? I mean, that, that's the first time I heard that phrase used that way. I mean, there's lots of ways you can use to meet people where they are. Um, but he was saying it in that they understand being beaten. And I just thought to myself, like, is it, are you not alarmed to hear yourself say that? Um, the woman who was sitting beside me, who was supervising me, uh, looked me in the eye and shook her head a little bit so that because she could see that I was about to, to start slapping tables and, and standing up and she just shook her head and when we walked out together she reminded me like this is Mississippi and I thought to myself it's not just Mississippi mm. like we have been beaten down this is not just Mississippi this is the story of the south and this is the story of the United States because 
we um as as particularly as people of color as black people um we're socialized to give up our power mm-hmm. and we we have to be conscious of it in the moment and we got to be conscious of what we're going to do to undo that uh, which is why i was so excited to connect with you and so excited to like have a way to articulate what i was feeling in my heart and in my head around racial equity i needed to get it out of my body i need to get it out of my campaigns um it this was not an isolated this this is not an isolated story and we had to i felt compelled um i really felt on fire to do this work and, and it's interesting because you know even though we're talking about mississippi right we're both we're charlotte century oh yes oh yes but oh, i saw work. all the same things happening in charlotte except for for children getting spanked i saw every single uh, low literacy rates, low expectations in the classroom, refusal to um, understand and engage parents, um, dismissal of organizers who were asking for basic needs. I saw all the same things. And, and, and that kind of plays like the point is like, like you said, Mississippi, the United States, Mississippi, the South, the United States, at the end of the day, like there's a theme, right? And so, you know, we can, as black people, people of color, <laughs> you can pretend it's not what it is, or you could like look it straight in the face and say, man, somebody got to do something about it. And it's like later for later for waiting around. Right. I, I think I think that's both both of our compulsion is like, you know, we both, I would think, have a reputation for being folks who talk straight, you know, who are, <laughs> who are plain spoken people. And I think it comes from an idea of like, you know, there's no point in like sugarcoating this stuff anymore. It doesn't it doesn't serve. Well, that's not true. It doesn't serve folks from marginalized groups well. It does serve somebody well, and it's folks who already are most proximate to power. Where it doesn't serve the kids you're talking about, right? For the right. student who's being beaten with the paddle, who's on the receiving end of corporal punishment, mm-hmm. right? For the, the student who's not able to read, us not calling it what it is, doesn't, that doesn't help them. And so like, for, I think for Creed, I think for us, Creed represents like our, our tangible act of doing something about it and going beyond just words and conversations, you know, um, it's about putting the structure in place and making it happen. And what was like a dream and like a really cool, you know, conversation has turned into something. And I think that, you know, humbly, I think we work well together. I think that we bring a lot of strengths, you know, and our approach is one that's, that's new for the country and also for North Carolina. Um, and there's a way that we go about our work, right? I mean, there's, it's 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 not typical it's multiracial it's multi-ethnic um and even all of our sessions man we begin it in a certain way right mm-hmm. um so anybody who's ever been there at one of our sessions creed academy any workshop we've done you know uh, you know that job one is we got to honor the context right mm-hmm. and we do a land and ancestor acknowledgement and there's a philosophy behind it that undergirds that and it's off-putting to some people i ain't gonna lie to you right like uh you don't got a name places right so <laughs> yeah we, so we definitely had some people with like deer and headlights um with the idea that we would center ourselves number one rooted in uh, like the deep and complex history of people in north carolina uh and number two we would explicitly name um that we are honoring indigeneity that we are honoring ancestral wisdom that we are honoring a moment to recognize and say their names I think a lot of people have not slowed down enough, particularly like not in quote unquote professional settings. They don't slow down enough to give recognition and acknowledgement. And so it feels off, it could feel even abrasive, I think, to some people to do that. Um, but I would say that starting in that way helps us end in a better place. 
Um, so we got to start with intentionality. We got to start by naming what we what we want to see in the room, what we want to have happen, and where we're coming from, where our roots are. It's got it's got to go beyond like the the bumper sticker stuff, though, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we're you know we're multicultural, <laughs> we're divert, we're culturally responsive, and we you don't even acknowledge the fact that like we're on stolen land. You know, it's like just job one, right? <laughs> like we're on, you know, um, I'm on Catawba land right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, from where I'm literally podcasting right now. That's, that's, that, that disrupts the popular narrative, but it also brings into the picture folks who, who are, you know, typically written out or mm-hmm. acknowledged or made invisible. That's an act, right, of resistance. So, yeah. um, and then yeah. like... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I would say that like, I mean, it's funny that you use the the terminology like active resistance, because I think the majority of how we work together and how we establish um, any kind of development experience, particularly like those implementation strategies on the ground across North Carolina, I, I think that just the way that we show up, I don't think in many cases people have seen uh, co-leaders. Um, I don't think that they've seen a man and a woman share share microphone time, mm-hmm. um, share ideals and concepts, disagree with each other publicly, which we're really good at. Yeah. Um, like, I don't think people have seen that uh, very often in terms of what it looks like to own your own power and to own your voice and to own your story. And I, I mean, sometimes we walk into a room, uh, you know, as we're in one of the smaller counties or and I can tell people just literally, well, they come up and tell us like they've never seen um, a dynamic <laughs> like that before. So, you know. It, I, I mean, I recall somebody saying like, um, this is like early on, right? Like dang near this time last year. Yeah, yeah. And we were just trying to figure out like our own styles and people were like, y'all two, I've never seen a black man and a black woman like co-facilitate. Right. And like y'all listen to each other. <laughs> and we're like, uh, we were always, again, we were friends already. She was like, what do you talk like? This doesn't seem earth shattering, but again, recognizing the context, like, mm-hmm. oh, wow. Okay. So this actually means something. Yeah. You know, visibly. And then, like you said, going into these other areas where just our presence, frankly, <laughs> yeah. showing up, ready to talk about race. And this, real and this words. real words. <laughs> this isn't a diversity. Tra- I've already been to, been to a diversity like, training. It's not a diversity training. I'm so sorry if that's what you signed up for. <laughs> that's not it. Um, but they also, the other thing is like we, um, you know, we've stuck our elbows out, right? Like there is, uh, there's a lot, you know, there's a space, right? And it's a shared space, right? Lots of people are operating in the space. Um, but to, to be uh, people of color, to be a black led organization, Right. And, and specifically and to be a people of color led organization in general and to command, right, the entrepreneurial spirit to say, now nah, we're going to do this. Right. And we're going to, you know, assert ourselves in this space and not. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just going to keep it real. Right. Like not tuck ourselves up under another organization right. or, you know, or get uh, grant dollars as as a fee or like as, you know, um, just to get a percentage of, of someone else's agenda to say, no, like we're going to lead in the space because that's what's needed is people of color leading, you know what I mean? Black men and women leading in the space. Cause who knows better than, you know, than those who experience like that, I think was almost disrupted. What do you, I mean, we do you think disrupt, so? Yeah, disrupted. We're going to, we're going to disrupt this space. Um, we don't, we don't, we don't do enough telling the truth. And so, you know, when you have two people in front of you who are pretty fearlessly telling the truth, even when it hurts, 
I mean, because the truth should hurt. Like, we, I mean, it should hurt when, when we're talking 25. We, we've been talking about the achievement gap for a good 25 years, like using that language of the achievement gap. That's right. 20, at least 25 years. It should hurt that when somebody says, like, what are we literally doing? Um, it should hurt if people are saying we've been doing diversity and equity trainings for, for t- the last 10 to 15 years, and you haven't seen a change in behavior for your organization or for your individuals. It should hurt when you talk about, I, when you realize you can't say the word white supremacy in front of your board without mm. somebody getting up and leaving. Mm. This needs to, we need to feel some pain points about this. If you've been doing this work and you can't say, you can't use the words to speak the truth, then you aren't really in it. And we got, we have a lot of people who are occupying space that, you know, are, they, they, they get, they get, they hogtie themselves. They limit their own power. Just number one, just by not being willing to say the truth. Mm. Mm. Just by not saying the truth. And so because of that, just saying something is true is like seen as radical. (laughs) You know, it's like, Hey, insert fact here, insert inconvenient fact here. And people are like, wow, that's uh, and it's like, Listen, it's like literally the truth, <laughs> you know, there's a, a quote I love from Pauli Murray, who's uh, got North Carolina roots and I do some work um, and I was reading and she, she says, we can't start to heal until we tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think that in this work, in the work of racial equity, particularly in education, we have got to be willing to say the truth and to live in our truth until we can get it right so we can begin that healing process because we people trying to jump right over to healing and reconciliation Uh-oh. um and they they have done no root work they have done <laughs> no root work and don't even want to talk about it you no know? i mean this is divisive can we just listen i get i just want to know what we can do about it mm-hmm. you know which you know so what would you say is a solution what's the solution to this <laughs> to, to to 400 years of white supremacy what's the solution like, we're not we're not we're not done <laughs> we haven't gotten to we're just going over definitions like can we just get can we we haven't even given you the history yet we're already talking about solutions and right. you know that's a i think typical response to like discomfort but you know something you said to me early on which um you know i then like took everywhere else was like man we don't love each other enough We don't love each other enough to tell the truth. (laughs) We don't love each other enough to work through the discomfort. Um, We don't love each other enough to call out a colleague and call in a colleague if we know they're doing something that's harmful to kids and have to look that colleague in the face the next day. (laughs) My brother will appreciate this, but do we love each other enough to call out our own family members and to Mm. go on a journey with them? I mean, we, we, a lot of us, we think we really have some conditioning that we have to undo. I, I often use the phrase like unlearning, um, because we've been taught that, it's, that it demonstrates love if we avoid the conflict. And sometimes even if we lie. Mm. And so I'm, for me, it, it demonstrates love to me when I reach out to you, when I say, like, I can meet you where you are, but I'm going to hold your hand while you go on this journey with me. Um, and there's going to be times where I speed up a lot and you might stumble a little bit. It's all right. That to me is a demonstration of love. That to me is a demonstration of uh, reciprocity and mutual accountability. Mm. And I think that's something that Creed does really well. Yeah, and, and you know, and like, and it's not all anecdotal, right? Like, I mean, for those of y'all listening, it's like, oh, they really sound like they know what they're talking about. Like, like humbly, I will say that you know, we we did we hit the ground running. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we hit the ground running uh, this time last year. Um, you know, we in total uh, in the calendar year in 12 months, we've presented to over 1,500 stakeholders. We're talking about in the North Carolina, again, we're North Carolina centric organization. Um, you know, part of our work, again, is to disseminate information, through, you know, 
public engagement, we've kind of established ourselves as a pretty reliable source of like racial equity news as it pertains to education. We have over 1,200 subscribers to our racial equity newsletter, which is called the Rewire Race and Education Wire. Um, and like we literally aggregate on a monthly basis race and education news views and research, right? Just because there's no reliable place to go to fast you right now. Like, how do you stay up on racial equity stuff? There's no place to go to. So we just created a newsletter. Um, and Freedom Hill Coalition, which we'll tell you all more about, uh, which is like literally us trying to close the knowing and doing gap by engaging stakeholders like who care about these issues, but just have not heretofore been organized. Like, we launched that uh, publicly in June. You know, we have 200 participants uh, and members of Freedom Hill Coalition representing all eight regions of the state. Um, over 300 hours to me of educator training last year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, we're all over North Carolina. Um, yeah, and shout out to all the counties and the, the wonderful educators that we uh, connected with over the, across the state over last year. Um, for sure, for sure. Places where sometimes you don't get no cell phone signal, right. you know what I mean? Like, uh, but it's been great because uh, it just shows that the state is literally um, varietous and you know not all the same and everybody has different varying needs. Uh, we successfully facilitated our, our, our first year of uh, our North Carolina Equity Fellows. The fellows, um, uh, our teacher fellow, uh, principal fellow, uh, our board fellow, uh, and our um, journalism fellow. And, you know, we, three of those um, were successfully deployed because, you know, we have to take a moment here to acknowledge that uh, our, our school board fellow, Portia McMillan from Cumberland County Schools, uh, passed away suddenly um in in february and so uh you know her presence was tremendously missed but the time mm -hmm. we did spend with her uh and as a collective i thought was super fruitful mm -hmm. and represented the possibilities for building leadership around these issues um but we done book studies three book studies with various uh groups and districts uh mm -hmm. two of them were zaretta hammond's culturally responsive teaching in the brain one was even kendi um how to be anti-racist that's right how to be anti-racist yeah, because it wasn't the uh <laughs> it wasn't a stamp from the beginning although no, it could be but book. <laughs> yeah that book, that book got some pages right <laughs> but uh it's useful for sure three partner districts and i mean we've been all over to districts i mean for one days and like mm -hmm. sort of drive-by pd but by partner districts we're talking about folks who have had an ex we've had an extended relationship with over the course of a year right mm -hmm. where we've been there offering education and, and professional development and direct assistance and three publications you know, that's, you know, I'm proud of those. You know, we came out the gate with two reports, uh, Deep Rooted, uh, Brief History of Race and Education in North Carolina, giving like a really good history for why race matters in education, specific to North Carolina. And then uh, Erasing Inequities, like a quantitative analysis of all one million and a half students in North Carolina in a way that really doesn't make it deniable. Right. Like, yeah, race matters. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, even a policy brief, which there are more coming, but for a year, like, we kind of got down, man. I ain't gonna lie. Like, we kind of we did our thing. And yeah, I know you're chuckling, but like, we just getting started. Like, that's the thing. I mean, I'm excited. Like, this is passion work to me. And I know it really it's the same is. for you. And I ground, I really ground myself. Like, I think about the number of teachers that we, we are, are serving and doing their professional development. I think about the assistant principals and the principals who I know who are, you know, they're self-reporting, uh, but they're also like doing their, their diagnostics, they're doing their theory of change work. They are implementing it and giving us feedback. I'm, I keep thinking about, you know, these million children in North Carolina, I, I just keep thinking that 
man, the echoes of our work in the reach of where we're going to, like, it's just amazing to me how much um, each of each time we're in front of an educator, like what the echoes of that can be for years to come for right now, what a difference it can make um, for educators to feel like they have the skills and the confidence um, to, to do their work in a way that really is moving towards equity. I think that is just, it, it grounds me in this work. It ignites me every day. And, and like, you know, no, no disrespect to think tanks, right? But we're not a think tank, right? That's not who we are. Like, you know, I, I enjoy think tank work, but like, we're about closing and no one doing gap. So people, there's a lot of smart folks who know things, but it rarely reaches the ground level. And so I think what we've done is we found ways to like say, okay, we're going to produce research and everything, but we need to make sure this stuff reaches the front lines, the administrators, the, you know, classroom instructors. And like you said, like, in a way that's always action oriented. What are we going to do about it? Like, what? Are, how are you going to shift your pedagogy? How are you going to change the systems? And, um, you know, I, I've been, I wouldn't say content, right? Because you never want to be content. But I've been happy with, you know, the response thus far. Um, and we're talking about, like, educators of all stripes, right? We ain't just talking about black and brown educators, which, let's be clear, you'd be surprised at the reaction to some of the stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we all right. we all are on a journey. Shoot. <laughs> we are all on a journey. God we all God. in different places. <laughs> <laughs> that was surprising. Um, Some of us took a pit stop and are still there. Um, yeah, cause, I mean, I think I've noticed that as we've gone through this work, you, you know, we, we it certainly has challenged my assumptions. I think yours too. You, you just really never know what people are carrying, what stories, what uh, biases they're carrying inside them that can prohibit them from being able to really to do this work with the level of integrity and diligence that they need to. Um, and it shows up in all kinds of ways, right? Like, I, I just, I just have this in, in my head, this, this idea of people whispering white supremacy, uh, in, instead of being able to say like, no, like there was a white supremacist campaign in North Carolina, y'all. Like this is not, it's not a secret. It's not a, this is, this was a formidable, formal process policy engaged strategy um and it's okay for us to name it because it's hard to change a thing if you can't name it mm. um and so people are trying to like name it you know i just i just laugh at this idea that we're gonna take baby steps to counter white supremacy right? mm. like <laughs> I, I it just it makes it, it really tickles me to think that like oh we, we're gonna just like we're gonna whisper about it we're gonna plan around it um because i think to myself like if there was a day um, if there was a way to mark our freedom and our liberation, would we take baby steps into that? Mm. Or would we run with our arms flung wide, you know, like, we, you gotta go take baby steps into liberation. I'm not gonna take baby steps to counter white supremacy. I wanna say it. I wanna do it. I wanna live it. I wanna be in my liberation with my whole body. Uh, and we gotta give that opportunity to our kids. Like, we got our children deserve that. Every one of our children deserve that. Oh, that is a... Uh... <laughs> That resonates, right? Even for me, it's like, you know, we took, I mean, to be clear, like, and I think we've showed this with Deep Rooted, like, you know, white supremacy, and we use that term not loosely, but tightly and precisely, right? right? Because, mm-hmm. and like, the one of the first things that happens when we address these issues is the policing of language, right? Because language is power, right? Mm-hmm. And the ability to name things or not name things makes things visible or, or invisible. And so there often is a, uh, almost a allergic reaction to the use of the term white supremacy. It's like, well, can we yeah. choose something that's not so divisive? Yeah. 
and my you know our pushback has been like you know divisive for who like we need to be very specific like do you think that black and brown people or indigenous people are like uh not comfortable using white supremacy well no okay well, well then let's be precise and say who this is divisive for and if we can get engaged in a process of of, of discussing why that it's quote-unquote divisive and whether and division is needed us, and who benefits from us whispering about it because there, there's somebody who's mm. benefiting from us whispering about it too um, yeah and it might be worth <laughs> spelling that out right as we're doing as we're brought in to do this work right like talking about that in full throat and so like you know we say white supremacy because white supremacists have used white supremacy right, right. we talk we talk about uh charles acock right the the education quote-unquote governor and you know him literally talking about schooling the the state in the university of white supremacy right. and it's like oh okay so we didn't come up with this like this is the language and these were not baby steps right they were full you know quantum leaps in a lot of ways um and to the notion of incrementalism is really what that is, right? That we're just going to take baby steps, find our way out. And we can't adhere to that. This has to be radical and radical in the true Latin root of the word, meaning like rooted and grounded in what's real. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and um, for, for me, I feel like that adherence to that is like, like a non-negotiable, you know? Yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, I'm the one that makes the people cry when we go to do. You are, y'all. She, I've learned so much from Janine. I'm not even gonna lie. Like, listen, and she warned me in advance. She's like, listen, <clears throat> this is gonna seem odd to you, but for whatever reason, women, particularly white women, cry when I speak. When I and I'm like, talking. well, and I was like, okay, so is it that you're being mean? And it's like, no. And lo and behold, <laughs> we with, tested it <laughs> with the level. No, but like not just tested it, like with the level of consistency. Oh yes, but we I tested mean, because you could you could say the same phrase. I sure could, and then I could say the phrase. Yes, and then women start crying. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, so again, we go back to like being intersectional, right? Understanding like, okay, we're both black, but like, what's the black experience? Is do what? Can I speak and say, yeah, you know, as a black person, I can say things that people won't cry. Well, that doesn't apply to Janine. Let me tell you. Uh, because for whatever reason, um, tears started flowing and it has presented a barrier. And I mean, there's lots of literature written on this that, you know, it's a way of, you know, in some ways like um, rhetorically, you know, hijacking mm -hmm. conversations um, to where it becomes, because everybody comes to the aid then of the person who's, you know, experiencing an emotional, you know, takeover. And, I thought I th I think you've done an excellent job of navigating that. Um, well, and still I've been navigating that particular skill for years, <laughs> um, <laughs> unfortunately. And I I mean people I think people take they take anti-racist work really personal um, all the time, um, and sometimes they take it personal when it's actually not personal. And so like I don't I don't I, you know as anti-racist educators as people who are in this work. I find that there that people have not really we haven't done enough groundwork for people to really understand that there is a difference between interpersonal racism, which is where somebody is directly, you know, offending, hurting, harming you and your identity, um, or structural or institutional racism. Like I don't know if we've done a, and I'm I'm putting myself in the we right because like we got to set some foundations as educators in our willingness to even lay some groundwork so we can have these conversations for real. Again counteracting the the language barriers have a lot to do with what languages and what language we use and what framework what words do we use 
to talk about the devastation of white supremacy. Do, are we using the real words? Um, because then everybody thinks that white supremacist means that you, you got a, a white hood in your closet. That's not mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Like, that's nope. not what we're talking about, you know? And so being able to differentiate between white privilege, white supremacy, um, and the boundary, boundaries and barriers that are like society has created, like being able to differentiate between that, I think is so important and can help people navigate that. But we find, I mean, in these trainings on the ground, people are just really struggling with how how much their identity is tangled up into these concepts. Um, and, and I would actually throw out there that like one of the major pitfalls as well is like, you know, people of color don't understand their role. I would agree in this. with you. I would agree with you. <laughs> like uh, black, you know, brown, indigenous, BIPOC people of color, right? Like aren't clear no. either, right? And they get somewhat in some cases like a head start because man, like just, you know, being a person of color, this place you on the margin, but it doesn't absolve you from like doing the work of understanding like, how these things not. operate at a structural level. And, no, and I, us, you know, I think, I, I think I've given a couple of people of color uh, whiplash when I say like, I have participated in white supremacy. Um, I, I went to a private university. I did my hair in certain ways. I changed the way I talk. Um, and I'm not just saying that the, the, the university I went to, um, was totally white supremacist, but the whole structure was built by those who were enslaved. And I did zero things to understand or acknowledge the context of which I was living in at that time, purposefully, purposefully. And so like, I, I, I call myself into question publicly. I'm willing to interrogate my own experiences very publicly. That hurts sometimes. Mm. And I think there's a lot of people of color who don't want to publicly reconcile with the choices that they make, you know, sometimes the schools that they send their children to, uh, they don't want to, they don't want to reconcile with these choices that they're making that in many cases are uh, amplification of these white supremacist constructs that we operate under as if they're true. Well, you know, we, we, we are all, we're all working through the journey of, and uh, Paulo Freire talks about this, right? The, the, the duality, right? That you are both oppressed and oppressor. Right. And especially in these spaces, right, where you're in a position of power, sometimes we parrot the same stuff we've been taught. Right. And it just recycles the same nonsense. Um, And unless we're forced to interrogate that and address that and remove the vestiges uh, of this of this oppressive system from ourselves, we might be made to think that, oh, well, I can't perpetuate white supremacy because I'm black. Right. And like I always laugh. Um, and you know, I haven't introduced this in our, our in our uh, workshops, but there's a scene in um, if you ever seen the show, uh, the miniseries Roots, right? The the renowned miniseries mm-hmm. Roots, uh, where you know Kunta is being forced to um, rid himself of his uh, ancestral name and to adopt the name Toby, which is a slave name. You people don't pay attention to who has the whip hand in that scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the person actually whipping him is a black person. Right now, there's a, a white overseer in the background that's telling him and commanding him. But the person who has the whip hand is black. So, do we meet? Does that mean there's no racism? Because look, the guy's whipping is black. It can't be racism. It just shows that we have yet to really deeply understand the nuanced nature of racism, and that requires us like really digging deep. And it's an evolution, right? Like you're not gonna just like you're not gonna take a pill. Uh, or read a book and suddenly have your eyes open. That's not how it works. This is a journey and it requires work, you know, and the interpersonal piece versus the institutional piece, that's a that's a sophisticated part that, you know, um, that, that a lot of us don't get to, but I know that's the nature of our work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and, and for any of you all who have listened this season, you know that like we have we we have really, I think, uh, tried to talk about all those parts. Right. Um, right. Our, you know, that we had, we had a couple of really cool uh, guests that I thought really lifted up the way that this shows up in our institutions and from a really deliberately multiracial, multi-ethnic perspective, which is our approach. Right. And racial right. equity tends to be like very black and white, very binary. And we know that white supremacy uh, is, does not operate like that. But there's some really cool guests that I thought we had and some moments that I thought really illustrated um, the ways that it shows up in our institution as education. Uh, one, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Tracy Benson, uh, uh, co-author of the book uh, Unconscious Bias, who talked yeah. about like, you know, like what do you do after, you know, implicit bias like so you realize you have implicit bias like okay great that's the new wave right mm -hmm. everybody has bias okay cool so what do we do with that though mm -hmm. you know once you realize you have certain preferences that are subconscious you got to go on a journey to then figuring out how do you take the steps to rid your particular system and you know art theory changes like you start with the self then you go to your system and then you impact society Right. So like once you deal with self, how are you going to rid your system of uh, systemic racism and white supremacy? And what are the steps, the tangible steps beyond just like the feel good book studies or what have you? Like, what are you going to do about that? And so I thought yeah. Tracy did a really good job of laying that stuff. Yeah, what were some Tracy, of the highlights for you? Well, I, I do want to I want to give shout out to Tracy because he pulls no punches. And I had the pleasure of sitting beside him uh, at the radio station uh, when we did um, a local NPR interview. And you know, he's, he really doesn't pull any punches. He really asks, he asks educators to think about their, their on the ground classroom practice and the decisions that they make every single day. Um, and he calls them, he, he calls them out, you know? Um, and I, I love that he's doing such good work. And I love that his book is getting such traction um, around unconscious bias and like how that shows up. Um, I think I, I particularly liked, um, I really enjoyed the story that, Professor Kulanu shared about her elementary teacher. She was she was in uh, that episode with Cat uh, Ballet as they were discussing just how childhood experiences can shape us. She was talking about her mother working so hard and her mother um, trying to help her finish this class project. And, and to me, it just reminded me of all the nights where my mom, I'm a twin and my mom would just like she worked in the library. She would be trying to gather us books for these projects. And we just have her ready to pull her hair out. And she was just so dedicated. And we have such beautiful and dedicated parents out here who are just trying to do right by their babies. And, you know, she tells that story uh, about her mother just put, helping her put so much effort into her project, so proud, and how her teacher just kind of devastated her. And that I thought to my, as a, as a former elementary school teacher, I thought to myself, the power that elementary educators have over our young children's lives, over how they cast a vision that can either lead them into celebration or devastation is just, that has echoed with me for so long. And I, I, I keep her story with me uh, kind of in my heart. Just the idea of like how, how her mother um, was so intentional and labored so hard to create a space of learning that engendered love for her child and just celebrated her versus the teacher trying to tear that apart and you know we got to work together like we we have a, we have an ability to build up our children in our communities and to, to lift them up and to celebrate them um, and we as teachers particularly elementary school teachers that's where my heart is we've got to we got to do a better job of that 
that story was powerful and um shout out to her uh unc charlotte uh program that i'm in as well um but you know she is now the interim director of the college of education but she tells that story all the time which means like you don't realize it at the time but the kids remember that stuff Mm -hmm. (laughs) like you know like it's going to be indelible they're going to carry it with them and um i so appreciated her vulnerability in that moment um and and a special kind of honorable mention as well uh, to Dr. Susan Faircloth, Indigenous Education Scholar, who talked about like the you know the untold parts sometimes how Indigenous um, students get left out of the conversation with mm-hmm. um, with racial equity, and just talking about her experience you know in North Carolina and um, and how you know Indigenous people are resilient right they're they're they are industrious they are brilliant. Um, they possess native genius um and th- that story often doesn't get told in, fr- in fact gets pushed to the margins uh, because of their size and denomination in the state but then if we're going to talk about racial equity we have to pay careful attention to uh the issues of native or indigenous students as well so i wanted to make sure that she got honorable mention yeah um, i like the episode as well with dr cooper being interviewed by one of our fellows rodney pierce uh, they were talking about the missing pages of Leandro, and you know, I was as I was listening to the to their conversation, you, Rodney took he took so much of uh, Leandro so personal, and it had such personal impact on his life, on his experiences in schools, uh, even on his own teaching practice as an educator that's still in the classroom, and you know. It, there's there's the journalistic angle where you're exploring those those real legislative decisions um, that led us up to you know tr- truly trying to define what what constitutes a sound and basic education um, and kind of the legalese definition of that and then you hear from Rodney like what does that really mean like what did right. that feel like how does it been explored and then where are we missing and I'm so glad that we had them on that kind con- I'm glad that we paired them on that last episode because I think. You know, we should all be taken. If we live in North Carolina and we have any children or any kind of peripheral relationship with public education, we should all be taking Leandro personally. We should we should be thinking about it. We should be thinking about the ramifications of it um, because it is a fraught subject um, in terms of how we are serving these kids or not. That's right. And shout out to the self-professed Leandro kid from Halifax County. <laughs> Rodney. <laughs> Rodney. You're right. It is personal to him and he's a well researched uh and, and well-read uh, educator who now serves on Nash Rocky Mountain schools. Um, but, you know, Leandro is, you know, it's, it's not exhilarating reading, but it's, it's the history of the state, right? And it, mm-hmm. it deals with, you know, the things we need to be cognizant and aware of and educational rights, essentially, for those who have been historically marginalized. But mm-hmm. um, so kind of on that topic, though, like, you know, uh, you know, lots of people are reading lots of things, especially with everything going on, right? Like, uh, we mentioned Ibram Kennedy's books blowing up and, you know, well, deservedly so, um, How to Be Anti-Racist. We did a book study with that. Uh, White Fragility is uh, by Robin D'Angelo. has been blowing up. All, all this stuff's on, like, the New York bestsellers list now. Mm-hmm. Um, what you been getting into? What you been reading lately? What's, what's been firing you up and keeping you there's a There's a book I kind of carry around with me. Um, and you, y'all got to know, I don't agree with 100% of any book I read. I'm probably one of the most critical and publicly uh, willing to publicly critique any author um, that I'm reading and engaging with, but I really like, um, <laughs> I really like <laughs> um, Adrian Marie Brown's emergent strategy um, in it. The, in the book, 
there's just so much rich, rich detail about our relationship to each other um, and, the, and just kind of this radical vision setting if we can do some collaborative work. And um, I've been so pleased that I had this book before we started doing our work with Freedom Hill because it really helps inform just a strategy where, you, where we are, we're, we're willing to push. We're also willing to be flexible. We're willing to understand and embrace ambiguity as we build out our liberation. Like there's just so much um, kind of futuristic imagination inside of this book and, and collaborative leadership tidbits that I think, you know, if you're doing any kind of organizing, you're trying to get your parents together, you're trying to get um, community to cast a vision of, of liberation. There's so much in here that moves us through like not just being safe, like willing to, to experience conflict and then to heal from it and then to use that healing to hold each other accountable and to make sure that we're not causing causing harm. I, I just, I find her uh, emergent strategy, I find it to be a really, um, a good self-check, self-check-in as, as I'm going and doing this work. Good, good. Um, you know, what's funny is like uh, recently in, in the news, like critical race theory, I don't know if you noticed, this is like mm-hmm. being rediscovered. I don't know if it was ever like lost or whatever, but <laughs> people are suddenly like infatuated with critical race theory. It's critical theory. And like that, and then it, I, just, I just found it very interesting. And so I've, you know, been picking up books from one of the founders of critical race theory, De- Derek Bell, and his mm-hmm. uh, face is at the bottom of the well. And, you know, whereas I don't necessarily consider myself a critical race theorist, um, you know, I got my critiques as well. Um, just him, him discussing the permanence of racism, right? Um, and the notions of interest convergence. Um, and like this idea that like, you know, America is not like a, you know, the racism is not, it's not like a, you know, the cherry on top. Like it's part of the fiber, like literally nothing that we know of America would exist without systemic racism Mm -hmm. and trying to think creatively about how we um, dismantle that while preserving some semblance of America um, is really fraught with a lot of, you know, I think it calls for Afrofuturism, right? It calls for thinking forward, which uh, leads to another book that I've been working my way through, which is uh, Radical Imagination by Max Haven. And for those of y'all who know, um, we always talk about radical ma- imagination. Mm-hmm. And he literally, um, Canadian author, but he studies like movements, right? Social movements. And it talks about like, what are the dynamics of social movements? Where do they go wrong? And um, understanding like, uh, if we're gonna dream forward, if we're gonna really find ways to build into the future, one is we have to understand like what's gone wrong in the past. But we have to be, be deliberate about constructing something that does not yet exist. Um, and like that has been giving me life, like working my way through that. And just like all the things, like, how do you make sure, as you talked about the Freedom Hill Coalition, how do we make sure that inequality is not reproduced in the way that we engage um, stakeholders? How do we make sure we abandon sort of top down or researcher and subject uh, sort of uh, uh, dynamics in the process and really focus on like convergence uh, rather than like convention? Um, so that's been, that's been cool. Uh, and there's a, co- cool. there's a co-author of that book, um, Alex Kaj Nabish. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I would have <laughs> been why you didn't say it. I don't, I, I don't want y'all to think you, you got the wrong book because there's two authors for that book. Um, and we used we use so many of the concepts in that book and in, to inform so much of our programming strategy. So um, shout out to both of them. Yeah, yeah, I go check that out. You feel so inclined. I, I mean, you know, <laughs> as you said, radical imagination, it reminded me that I'm also reading Radical Dharma. Um, talking race, love, and liberation. And it's uh, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, uh, Lama Rod Owens, and Jasmine Saduya. 
do do my um again somebody's name that please forgive me if i've messed up your name um but to your to your point and you know thinking about people a lot of people are using the word radical right now um, but how are we framing that and this book uh radical dharma really calls the question uh you know the 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 level of ego that's tied up in this moment um and they talk something about the social ego and the construction of whiteness and how can we confront the social ego and and when i read it it really made me think about the social the social ego of white america um and these inherent assumptions and beliefs about um the the value the inherent beauty the uh, the love of freedom, all of those things are tied up into the white imagine into the imagine the imagined white America, right? Um, and so, as we're ta- as we're in a moment where we are actually pushing for liberation, we're we're utilizing radical imagination. We are living into the next steps. Um, I think we have to ask ourselves questions about liberation and whose bodies, whose literal bodies are incarcerated, uh, whose literal bodies um, and literal minds are not being educated. We have to ask ourselves some real questions about that and pay attention to our answers so that we can actually move, we can get some traction and move ourselves into the right direction. Because um, there's a lot of hierarchy happening and we've got to articulate it in order to undo it. See, now you're going to make me throw one more out before we close. Uh, <laughs> hillbilly nationalists and uh, I don't have the book in front of me right now with all three authors, but to your point, um, it's possible to organize white people in an anti-racist way. And like, there's a precedent there, right? So it literally profiles five social movements throughout the 1960s civil rights movement um, that coincided with like the black power struggles, but they were white led movements and they were anti-racist movements and they were working class movements. And they, mm-hmm. they existed in Chicago, they existed in Philadelphia, they existed in the Bronx and in, uh, in New York. And I think that we don't tell those stories enough as well. They're like, yes, like when we educate and provide necessary education to white folks and they understand that white supremacy is a harm, not just to people of color, but to them as well, that they begin right. to, they, they begin to organize themselves and they begin to organize their communities in ways that are earnest and intentional. And, um, you know, there, there's a president that we don't always consult and it gives us models like for going forward, for disrupting mm-hmm. and breaking up those hierarchies. And so I feel like that's crucially important. So um, that's one that's yeah. uh, I'm working my way through as well. So, I mean, we're getting ready to close here, but like the natural question is like, what's next for us, Janine? Everybody probably wants to know, like after a year, you know, a happy, bir- happy birthday, happy anniversary celebration. Uh, what do we got on the horizon, yeah. man? What can they look forward to? I'm so excited that so many uh, people were able to join us for our first kind of public Freedom Hill launch. And so some of you may not know that Freedom Hill is our, Freedom Hill Coalition is our engagement um, arm of Cree, but it's really led by the people. And so we had a fantastic session in June of this year, um, just really inspiring speakers. We had our, the, we sent her youth voice. And so there were student speakers and uh, young people who were telling us their story. We're going to, you're going to see more of that. And so we have some leadership trainings coming up for Freedom Hill. Um, actually, we have the first one, August 22nd for the leadership, for regional leadership, but there'll be more. So don't worry um, if you're just checking this out. And then we'll have on October 3rd, we ask that you save the date to join us for our next big Freedom Hill virtual convening. And so that that is on Eventbrite already. And we hope, we really hope that you'll join us for that. Absolutely. And, and there'll be plenty more also uh, engagement uh, strategies. You, you, you all can expect the podcast to keep, keep getting produced and 
the newsletter, newsletter, these things are perennial, uh, but we'll be offering like some standing professional development opportunities as well. Yeah. We uh, offered our first uh, successful Creed Academy. Creed, Creed Academy. Super excited about that uh, learning opportunity for uh, folks in the state who want to increase and sharpen other equity lens, become more equity focused, and just, you know, kind of taking a lot of stuff we're talking about and directing it toward in-service teachers in a way that helps uh, raise critical consciousness in the field. Uh, but really, Freedom Hill is going to be, I think Freedom Hill is going to be something we're folks going to be talking about for quite some time. It's going to be interesting to see how that blossoms. You can search the hashtag, I stand on Freedom Hill to, to see uh, some of the work that we've been doing there and I would I mean anybody who wants to be engaged with us Creed Academy is a way to get engaged with us it doesn't matter where you are it doesn't matter if you're a parent um, a teacher it doesn't matter if this is your first time having a racial equity conversation um, Freedom Hill you can be engaged with Creed Academy you can be engaged with teaching color you can be engaged with uh, on the margins you can be engaged with so we just want y'all to come and join us and um, you know hold hands with us in this work we're, we're all taking a journey together towards equity also important, um, you know, none of this work could be possible without the support of, uh, of funders, of, of supporters who dedicate their time, energy, and resources. Um, and, you know, I think that um, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that the, the opportunity to support Creed is always, always open, but most especially now to commemorate our one-year anniversary. Uh, we just want to make sure that y'all have if it's on your heart and minds, the chance to help to help give to us, to help support our work, to you help sound make like sure. a preacher, James. You know what I was thinking to myself? I was like, boy, now I sound like this is the this is the offering part of the service. <laughs> I was literally thinking that I was like, oh man, uh, I sound very much like I'm in the church. I can't help it. Uh, so now was the time. Open those no, it's fine. <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, you know, uh, funds are needed, right? Uh, we're always in the fundraising capacity. We're a nonprofit organization. Um, and, you know, we depend on uh, the generosity of individuals as well as organizations to help support our work. We have a big goal of $10,000 raised before uh, the end of this year, but we really want to join the momentum of Black Giving Day on August 28th. And so if you were planning to give, if you were planning to help support us, we ask that you uh, do so in that, in that last week of August. You can... Um, Anytime from your hearing of this um, till then or to the end of the year, please don't hesitate to reach out to us um, via directly via email or you can go to our PayPal um, and just give directly to us and we will acknowledge you um, because we're so thrilled that we have so many individuals, so many um, people interested in doing uh, monthly donations, so many teachers and parents and advocates who are on the ground doing this good work and we are, we're so glad to be in community with them. Make sure you check us out. We'll link those resources in, um, in the information for this episode. But that pretty much concludes our time. Janine, thanks for uh, swinging by and hanging out. I know we're going to be doing this more often, but I'm glad that people got a chance to uh, learn more about you and see us um, in action. Um, yeah, so thanks for taking the time. Much more fun than I had anticipated. So thank yeah, you for the invitation. Yeah, we're not half bad. So, um, <laughs> hey, folks, thanks so much for your continued support of what we're doing. And uh, we'll be signing out right now for season two. Be sure to catch us for season three and continue to follow work Creed's work at creed-nc.org. Appreciate y'all.